You're listening to Vet Candy. and welcome to this episode of Vet Candy IRL, and I'm your host, Shannon Gregoire. So today I thought I'd bring you guys something a little bit different, and I have a veterinary industry professional who is a Marine Corps veteran, and for all our vets in the audience, he went to Paris Island for his training, just so we can clear the air on that one, because I heard there's uh, (laughs) some uh, inner Marine Corps jokes about that. So he is a military veteran, And now he is transformed into kind of a Jack Reacher of sorts for the veterinary profession in regards to our certain things within the contracts that we have been seeing in the veterinary space and how that is changing and developing over the past few years. So before we get into the hot stuff, um, please welcome Mr. Paul Diaz. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Shannon. I do appreciate this opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about um, all the important um, stuff we have going on today because I think it's really important for people to hear. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about your background and your time in the military and then how you ended up in the veterinary space from all that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like you said, I am a U.S. Marine. I joined them about less than 30 days after graduating high school. I was in boot camp. I spent four years with them, did two tours to the Middle East. And then once I got out of the Marine Corps, got into corporate America in the uh, nuclear industry of all things. Um, wow. I spent about 10 years working for utility industries. And that's kind of where I got my start in recruiting. So mm-hmm. the it just happened, luckily, where the site staffing manager was retiring and I had done a lot of work with her department, so it was kind of a natural transition for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first position in the recruiting space was as a recruiting manager of a very high-performing team. And luckily, you know, that team, they're the ones who taught me everything I knew about recruiting. You know, my job for them was to eliminate the roadblocks, make sure that they had the tools and the, the resources they needed to do their job. And you know, I was able to hold up my end of the deal and in return. They took me under their wings and taught me everything they knew. And then my career just took off from there. So wow. funny thing is, is I've never, I've never once held the job title as a recruiter, but here you, here we are. Yeah. This isn't what I thought my career would, uh, would turn to, you know, after I got out of the military, but I, I'm not complaining. I'm extremely satisfied mm-hmm. and happy with the work I'm doing today. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you worked, you were a VP of recruitment, right? For a big um, veterinary corporation. Yeah. So prior to that, I had um, worked as a vice president of position recruiting for the human health industry. And then I was recruited to a a veterinary medical group, one of the largest in our country. And I spent about two and a half years with them. Um, Spent my first six months really just defining their processes, training their team, um, implementing the right tools and technology. Um, and then after two full years of runtime, that team ended up returning over 1,100 DVM hires in just two years, which is something I was incredibly proud of. And in such a small industry, that's quite a significant amount of vets. <laughs> it absolutely is. But, you know, I, I luckily had a great team there. Those folks were just really passionate about recruiting. They were passionate about the veterinary industry. And, you know, teaching them the ropes was very easy. 
And like I said, I, I was lucky to have worked for them. They were just a great group of people. No, oh, that's awesome. And now you are self-employed. Do you work for yourself now? Yeah. So, you know, after the founders of that group left, I saw an opportunity to do things differently and to do things better. And that's when I started my own little company here. And the intent around starting Higher Power Consulting was twofold. Number one was to test out a new recruiting technology that I'm developing. But number two, I also wanted to do things differently in terms of how candidates were handled. Mm. Primarily what I mean is, you know, finding a new job is a major life decision for, for many people, right? Mm-hmm. And when we make those major life decisions, we generally have somebody, a professional, an expert helping us, right? So for example, you go to buy a home, you've got a realtor helping you out. If you have to go to court, you've got a lawyer helping you out. But when you're looking for a new job or you're looking to switch jobs, those employers have a whole host of people representing the interests of that company. Right. But the job seeker does it alone. They don't have anybody representing their interests. So Mm -hmm. that's why when I started Higher Power, I decided that I was going to do it from the perspective of being an advocate for the talent. And some people will say, well, hey, isn't there a conflict there? Because the employers are the ones that pay you, right? So how do you do that? Well, Mm -hmm. yes, that is true. I don't accept a penny from any candidate for any of my services for them. But with the employers, I'm extremely candid with them. And I let them know that They are engaging me to find them the talent. And once I do, I represent the interests of that talent. And one of the mutually beneficial arrangements I have is that, you know, my compensation is based on the compensation I secure for that talent. Mm -hmm. So the more I get for that candidate, the more I get for myself. So there's that mutually beneficial arrangement Mm -hmm. versus if you're speaking directly with a, a corporate recruiter from an employer who's representing the interests of that employer, their job is to get you to take that position at the lowest possible rate. So there's the two differences there. And it's been relatively successful. So I'm, I'm very happy with that. That's really awesome. I mean, that's mind-blowing that there hasn't been something like that before because, you know, everyone talks about contract negotiations and it's this big, scary topic because you have to go in and you know, usually find a lawyer or someone to go over the contract because the minutia of the language in these things, like I've probably seen about eight or 10 of them myself so far. And some of them are very, very particular and very like nothing is left to the imagination in these contracts. And it's not easy to read if you don't know what you're looking at or what you're looking for in a contract. That is absolutely correct. And especially think of a new grad, right? Who such as yourself, right? I, I believe you're graduating this year. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm graduating this year. So I'm in, in the mud in this topic. <laughs> you know, I just recently started visiting universities and giving this lecture at the schools. And, you know, these veterinary students, the last thing they have is free time, right? Mm-hmm. So they get these employment contracts. They do the best they can to review them. How many of them are actually going to pay an attorney to look at that, right? Or actually have mm. the time to go through that? Some, some or the money. Don't, but the majority don't. Exactly. The money too, right? So what do they do is they rely on the information given to them from the employer that gave them that contract, right? And there, that, then we start running into conflicts of interest if we want to talk about that term. But mm. the thing is, is that, you know, my efforts now are to educate as many veterinarians and vet students as I possibly can with the intent of empowering them to make the right decisions for themselves. 
one thing that I've learned since I started doing this is that, you know, veterinarians out there right now just simply do not understand the power they have in today's job market. The leverage is with them. And the more I can educate them on that, the more I can help them understand how to use that, the better off they're going to be, right? Then we're going to start seeing the treatment of veterinarians just increase exponentially for the better, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And you can find a reputable lawyer wherever you are located by the National Employment Lawyer Association. And you can find lawyers that specialize in employment law because there are as many specialties in uh, law as there is in medicine. So um, that is something if if you have the time, um, we can put the link in the notes of this show also for anyone that's interested in furthering that exploration as well. Um, and talking about contracts, what's the weirdest thing that you've ever seen? I have mine, but I want to hear what you, what's the weirdest or like most particular thing you've seen in a veterinary contract so far? Oh gosh, I don't even know how to start categorizing <laughs> these because there's so many, but I'll, you know what, I'll give you some of the major ones. Obviously, the non-compete. I've seen some very strange terms around that. Clawback agreements, we have to be careful with clawbacks. I, I've seen for the most part, the contracts that have been shared with me, the, those clawbacks have been written in a mutually beneficial manner, right? Where both parties can, uh, are, their interests are protected. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Quincy Hawley, and I'm here to tell you about a new show. It's Vet Candy Rounds with the Hawleys. That's right, Dr. Tierra, the love of my life, and I have teamed up to bring you the most fascinating cases in the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or a podcast platform of your choice, only on Vet Candy Radio. And what does the clawback mean for anyone listening, just so we define that for everybody? The clawback is a term that you're normally going to find in the compensation section, okay? Mm -hmm. It's generally tied to any type of bonus that's given, especially sign-on bonuses, anything that's given up front. Right. So a lot of times employers will throw in, you know, let's say a $10,000 sign-on bonus. And then mm-hmm. let's say another, you know, $10,000, $15,000 relocation, right? So that money is given to the candidate up front. And the clawback is a statement that indicates if you leave within, let's say, the first 12 months, you will have to pay back a prorated portion of that bonus. Now, if that term, if it does indicate a prorated portion, then I'm fine with that. Right. So this mm-hmm. way, and basically why employers use that is to protect themselves in the event that I take the job and I leave two months later and I walk away with twenty, thirty thousand dollars cash. In t- over 20 years of recruiting experience, I haven't heard about candidates bouncing from employer to employer for a sign-on bonus. I just it's right. not something that happens. But most recently, I had a new grad send me a contract for a practice in Washington. They were offering her $30,000 up front between relocation and sign-on. And the clawback agreement asked for the full repayment of $30,000 within five days if she were to resign within that first year. Let's think of that um, in a different way. So she starts this job 
all good intent, right? Within a couple of months, she realizes, well, hey, this isn't what I thought it was during the interview, right? That mm -hmm. shiny new equipment that was all polished up. Well, hey, you know what? It's really not that new. And mm -hmm. all this mentorship that they told me that they provide, well, you know, the leaders are constantly saying how busy they are and that they'll get back to me, right? Or maybe mm -hmm. it just became a toxic work environment for whatever reason. And this candidate stays there for as long as she can before she just needs to leave. And it's not at the year mark. Let's say it's 11 months. Mm -hmm. If she signs this contract, she's going to owe 30 grand within five days. Now, there are instances where new employers will buy that out. But how many people want to go to a new employer with $30,000 worth of baggage? So if this were prorated and she left at 11 months, she would owe $2,500. Not bad. How many new grads in the first year are going to have a $30,000 check to write to somebody? It just doesn't happen. No, nobody. So what, and when I pointed that out to her, I mean, it was an eyes wide open type of experience. She's like, I didn't even realize that. You know, and that's the thing. They, they'll review these contracts, but they'll gloss over a lot of these terms or not really understand it. And the other thing is, is that many are simply afraid to ask. Mm -hmm. and that's something I'll dive into later on if we have time. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you, to answer your question specifically, the weirdest, and this just happened yesterday. Oh, gosh. I got a contract from a major veterinary employer, and I'm going to read it to you. It says, the team member's employment with the company has special, unique, and extraordinary value to the company, and the company would be irreparably damaged if the team member were to provide services to any person or entity outside of the provisions of this agreement. This yes. is a multi-million dollar corporation that is saying one general practice veterinarian will irreparably damage this company. Yeah, like that's actually possible. That's like so insane. It's hilarious because that's absolutely ridiculous. But these are the things that I find in these contracts, you mm -hmm. know, and these are the contracts that, you know, unfortunately, many veterinarians are signing and they're mm -hmm. doing so because they don't understand that they have the power to say no to that. The veterinary industry is one of the few industries where a majority of the revenue is generated off the backs of one job classification. And mm -hmm. that's the veterinarian. So right. if we're able to educate and empower these veterinarians to improve these conditions and to improve these terms for themselves, the industry will respond. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, Shannon, nobody, no corporation is going to change their stance on this non-compete issue because Paul Diaz is making a stink on LinkedIn. Nobody's mm -hmm. going to do that. Right. But if I'm able to, with the support of people like you and this podcast, Dr. Lopez and others, if I'm able to educate, if we are able to get this word out and educate these veterinarians and get them to stand up and say, hey, you know what? We're not signing non-compete right. agreements. You know, maybe an entire university or several universities of students, they say we're not signing employment agreements with non-competes. Mm -hmm. And the industry will buckle. The announcements won't be, hey, you know, we're ending our non-compete because Paul Diaz said so. No, that's not what they're going to say. They're going to say no. something like, this has been an issue that we've been taking under consideration for many years, and now's the time to end it, right? And to be honest with you, Shannon, I don't yep. care. I don't care about the credit. That's not what I'm after. Right, what right. is the result. Yeah, they'll make it seem like it's their idea always, because that's just how it goes, as long as it makes better working conditions. Because it's funny that you read that clause in the contract that you were sent, because one of the ones that I ended up parting ways with a company I was interested in working with it's because they had a, a clause very similar to that 
it was very particular in, in that I couldn't work for anyone else in any other capacity, which is definitely a no-go for me because, you know, I have the podcast and all these things that I like to bring to pet parents and other vet students. And I didn't want to not be able to continue my podcasting because I was working as a clinician and those things are like, they don't even cross paths with each other. And even when I was talking to them about, oh, well, what if I want to volunteer at like a vaccine clinic or I want to volunteer at a spay and neuter clinic, you know, just to get some side experience, you know, that doesn't obviously compete with the regular practice as well. And they wanted me to give them like the exact place that I was going to go to. And I was like, I don't know this. This These are just future things that I'm looking at, you know, that things that I could be interested in the future. And I don't want to have those opportunities, you know, smacked out of my hand because I can't work for anybody else in any capacity as a doctor, except for you, because now you own my degree. I'm like, no, you didn't pay off my debt or, you know, I have my degree. That's mine to use. Not, not just yours. (laughs) Shannon, what you just said is something that many people overlook. And what, what you, what you said exactly was your future. So a lot of these students will sign this contract thinking, oh, today it's no big deal. But they're not considering what could potentially happen to them in the future. What opportunities are going to present themselves in the future that they are no longer going to be able to take because they signed that agreement. Right. right? So it doesn't just prevent, it's it's not blocking you from doing something today only. I mean, you know, it could be 12, 24, 36 months down the road, you know, and I, I've seen general practice contracts that are trying to tie doctors or, or trying to prevent them from practicing medicine for 24 months. Mm-hmm. I mean, this this new grad that um, the, the contract example I just shared with you was 18 months. They're squeezing in an extra six on top of that, right? And that's what they try to do. They'll, they'll try to squeeze a little more, a little more, because they think that, you know, or they know that most new graduates, most veterinarians, you folks are just so busy that when they say, hey, get this back to me by Friday, you're going to start looking at it Thursday night when you finally get a minute, mm-hmm. freeze over it, sign it, and go. That's what I need to help veterinarians understand that that's what they need to stop doing. And that's also why, you know, I recently offered a service to veterinarians free of charge where I will review those contracts. And yes, I'm not a lawyer. I let them know that I'm not giving them legal advice, just advice from somebody who has experience with these. It's crazy because we spend four years of intense training to save lives. We don't get four years of experience on how to negotiate on our, on our own behalf legally. Um, I think that should be contract negotiation should actually be a class instead of maybe a couple lectures, you know, maybe two or three over four years where no one ever pays attention or listens. (laughs) And that seems pretty unhelpful. (laughs) We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Vet Candy makes learning fun with the most fascinating people on our planet. Our entertaining continuing education programs are made for your streaming world. Fabulous, fun, and free. Available on demand anywhere and anytime. Don't miss out. Subscribe today on iTunes, YouTube, or a platform of your choice. Or visit myvetcandy.com for more information. Do 
do you want a, a, a two-minute class on negotiations? Yes, let's do it for everybody. And check this out. So this was something that I did at the VBMA's national meeting. Mm-hmm. And I told that audience, I promised them that by the time I was done with my lecture, every single person in that room would admit or would agree that what I told them hadn't been told to them by anybody else. And I was mm-hmm. right. And here's the thing. Let me give you a little example of negotiations. One of the biggest traps that recruiters use And I know this, Shannon, Mm. because I used to teach it. So now I am making up for that mistake. But what these recruiters will do is you'll apply for the job. They'll they'll have that phone call with you. And they're going to make you feel incredible. Like you're their best friend, right? It's going to be a very cordial conversation. You're going to talk about some personal things. And maybe there's some commonalities. Maybe you like hiking and they like hiking, whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be a very friendly type conversation, right? Because that is their job. and That's what they're supposed to do. At some point in that discussion, Shannon, they're going to ask you, and I need you to role play with me on this one. They're going to ask mm-hmm. you, well, Shannon, you know what? Gosh, you, you seem like you'd be a great fit for this role. We're so excited to have you as part of the team. Let me mm-hmm. ask you this. How much would you like to earn in this next role? How much? Just give me it. What would you say to that? Like as their associate? Base pay, yeah. How much would you like to earn for your compensation? Um, 120000 120 grand. Excellent. That's a great number. But guess what you just did? You made the biggest mistake that everybody makes. They uh, ask for less. (laughs) Well, no, that's not not necessarily. It's not that they asked for less. It's that you answered the question to begin with. Because Mm -hmm. Shannon, you said you wanted 120, right? What if I told you that my budget for that job was $160,000, but by you telling me you wanted 120, I now know that I can give you 125, maybe 130, and you're going to be over the moon happy. Mm. And then I get to go back to my bosses and say, hey, I just saved us $30,000, $35,000 by getting Shannon to take it at less than 160. And that's yep. where I'm talking about. Remember when I first started, I talked about representing interests, right? Candidate, or I'm sorry, that recruiter is responsible for representing the interests of their company. Their job is to get you to take that job. Their job is to get you to take that position at the lowest possible rate they can. Right. And negotiations 101, Shannon, the first person that says a number loses. So the way you answer that question or the way that I'm teaching veterinarians to answer that question is when they ask it and they will, Mm -hmm. unless they hear this podcast, they'll end up changing their game. When you get asked that question, hey, how much would you like to earn? What you say is, hey, what I want to earn is less important to me right now than knowing how you value this position. And if your value for the position aligns with my value for myself, then we can talk. And you get them to say a number first. And you know what they're going to do most times? They're going to say, well, you know, our range, our range is 100 to 130. And that, Shannon, is a weak answer. And here's why. Every corporation, every company knows exactly what a vacant position is worth to them. Mm -hmm. They have a value that they place on every single job they have they should be able to articulate to you what that job, how that job, or how they value that position. Mm-hmm. They should be able to articulate that. But if they can't, they're just not being transparent in the process. Right. The problem with identifying a range is that most new graduates, even, you know, crap, even experienced veterinarians, even experienced job seekers, they'll hear that range, that 100 to 130, but the only number that sticks in their head is the 130. So what ends up happening is, They'll go through this entire process and they'll interview and you know do everything as perfectly as they possibly can. And then at the very end, they get an offer for $100,000 and they're like, wait a second, 
thought you said it was 100 to 130. You told me I did great. Mm -hmm. Bottom of the range. Then what ends up happening is think about that new grad who has no free time, right? Who may have gone through two or three interviews. They get to this one and now they're just exhausted. And they accept the job primarily because they don't want to go through this song and dance anymore. Right. Right? And that happens to a lot of professionals out there. But you turn that question around, you, you, you force them to be transparent with you. Mm-hmm. And if they do give a range, you could say, well, you know what? I need something more specific before I decide to give you all my personal time. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And it sounds like a uh, big trap, especially for veterinarians when they tend to, well, women in general tend to ask for less than they are worth. That is that is true. And I, I've got data to support that as well, which is another reason why I, I work so closely with them to to demonstrate that, hey, you know what, you're way more valuable in today's market than you realize, mm-hmm. right? This is basic supply and demand. When the demand is really high and the supply is really low, who has the leverage? The supply, mm. you get to name that price now. And at some point, yeah, there's going to be, there's got to be a balance there somewhere, right? Because obviously these astronomical salaries aren't going to be something that can be, or something that can be achieved forever, But at the end of the day, you know, these employers are looking to do one thing, and that's protect their margins. Mm -hmm. So they may normalize compensation, right? They try to minimize that. They may increase prices for the pet parents, but that can only go so far, right? Mm -hmm. So they need to find that balance. But the last thing they're going to do is cut into their margins because that's their bottom line. That's how they answer to their investors, how they answer Mm -hmm. to their shareholders, right? What I'm saying is, hey, you know what? I think it's time to carve into that margin because let's say hypothetically speaking, and I don't know if these are accurate numbers or not, but let's say Mars, the, the, one of the largest veterinary employers in the world, if they were projected to make $150 billion next year, but they only made 130, are you or any other veterinarians going to lose sleep over that? Probably not. But that new grad who took that job at 85000 right? because mm-hmm. she thought it was a fair rate because they told her something like, oh, this is what the market is for new grads in this area, right? And that's another topic, but, you know, so <laughs> she signs that contract and then her her um, student debt payments start kicking in. Maybe she wants to start a family and she starts to realize, wow, this $85,000 is not going to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. So what do I got to do? I, I need to earn money somewhere else. Oh, but I signed a non-compete, so I can't see those dogs you know, on Saturday, I can't work an extra shift at that other clinic. So maybe I'll drive for Uber or do something like that. And that's the last thing I want any veterinarian doing. But right. That candidate, that job seeker, that veterinarian is going to lose sleep. Right. And that's right. the person I'm trying to protect. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, those non-competes and different things really impact the well-being of our, of our veterinarians and our uh, clinics because I've seen so many on social media and other places where people have to move cities quite literally, uproot their whole lives just to go work somewhere else for a year so they can come back to where they actually want to live. And that to me is just insane. And expecting someone to sign something where (laughs) you either work for us and then you can't work for anyone else, it seems more like I'm signing a jail sentence almost like you're you're trapping me at your clinic because you don't think that you're good enough or that I'll be happy enough to stay with you out of my own free will. Like that's what I see. Like what are you hiding to try to to trap me here 
with you. Like, I don't want to feel trapped. I want to be here because of my own free will that I like working here. Because I don't think veterinarians want to jump around and uproot their lives and all that stuff all the time. It's a lot of work. It's expensive and it's stressful. So if you can be happy in one spot, like people are going to stay. Shannon, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, I couldn't have said it any better myself. You know, and I use that example of people having to uproot their entire lives, uproot their families, leave communities that they set those roots in mm. for a job, right? And I don't know a single veterinarian, a single veterinarian who got into this industry to treat sick animals that only walk into a specific building or to mm. treat patients that only I tell you you can treat, mm-hmm. right? I just, nobody got into this industry for that reason. You know, and let me give you an example. This five miles, does that sound like an unreasonable distance to you, right? Because these non-competes come with a time constraint and a mileage constraint. Right. And a lot of times what I'll hear is, oh, five miles is not that bad, right? And it doesn't seem bad, right? No, not if you know what it means. (laughs) And what it means is that five miles is as the crow flies. So regarding that five-mile non-compete distance, right? Many folks think that it's not that big of a deal. It's not an insane distance. But the thing is, is that that five miles is as the crow flies, you know, that straight line distance and nobody drives as the crow flies. (laughs) Right. One of my candidates who sent me her employment contract, she didn't think it was a big deal either, right? She's like, yeah, it's just five miles Mm. until I showed her what it meant. And I went to Google Earth I drew a radius around the city she was going to be working in, which was Seattle. Mm-hmm. And that five miles covered the entire metropolitan area of Seattle to yeah. include many other cities on the outskirts. So I also did a, additional research for her and I showed her that there's 22, I believe there was 22 small animal practices within that radius and only six outside. So if something happened at this employer that she wasn't happy with, or they created a toxic work environment for her, she would have to hope that one of those six practices was hiring, hope that one of those six practices hired her, but then also sit in the traffic and sit in that increased commute to get to that employer. And you know what? If one of those six didn't, the commute was even further. When Mm -hmm. I showed her that, that's when she had that kind of aha moment. She's like, wow, okay. This is a big deal because you know what? She's one of those city people who didn't even own a car. She was, you know, she had bike to work. She used transportation like that. So for her to go and have something, you know, have something occur at the job where she wanted to leave it and then had to go to one of these practices outside that radius, it didn't just mean I have to go just find a new job. I'd have to find transportation too, right? So there was all kinds of life changes that needed to be made that she wasn't considering when she was trying to just get a job. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. 
it's really crazy. And to think that all these veterinary hiring companies and all these employers are like, oh, we care about our veterinarians. Oh, we put our people first, blah, blah, blah. And then they smacker you with this contract that says the exact opposite. And all I want to say on everybody's post on LinkedIn is like, I know you're a hypocrite, so you can stop posting this because you don't care about your veterinarians. You don't care about your people because if you did, your contracts wouldn't look like ABC. And it, it literally lights a fire under my butt and I have to almost bite my tongue off not to say something because it's that infuriating. Well, next time you see one, Shannon, all you have to do is tag me and then I will say it. <laughs> That's all you have to do. And I'll do it for you. Perfect. Perfect. Because it's just, I, I just can't take the hypocrisy. It's, it's obnoxious, especially when I've personally seen some of these contracts myself. I'm like, you don't really care about your people. I don't care about your headspace, friggin', you know, oh, you know, self-care when you're making people sign this contract. Like that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't make up for your contract. You know what, Shannon, let's, um, if you don't mind, I'd like to point out just a couple things that employers, and this is just through some basic comments. Some people have reached out to me privately, mm-hmm. but some of the points they make in defense of this con- of these clauses. Mm-hmm. Do you want to hear some of these? Yes. Number one, and this is actually kind of funny because I had a practice owner tell me that the non-compete protects his business. And then I asked him very specifically to articulate how and the conversation started. You're exactly right. He's like, well, nobody's ever asked me that. And he goes, but I'm sure it does. I said, well, articulate, tell me how it protects your business. And he said something about, well, well, you know, it, it makes sure that the veterinarians I hire stay with me. And I said, oh, so this isn't about protecting your business. This is about eliciting control over others. Mm-hmm. Right? And I right. told him, I said, it, the best way to protect your business is to have well-paid, well-respected, and well-treated employees. I said, if you have that, there's no reason why they will want to leave. But forcing them to stay with you is not how you protect your business. The next one was it keeps people from leaving me to go get more money. And I was like, well, wait a second but you are requiring me to sign this contract and stay with you so that you can make more money, right? And they're like, well, no, that's, that's not how it is. No, that's exactly how it is. You could pay me a, a, a wage, which is fair and equitable, right? And then over a couple of years, I realized that I'm not getting raises. You're not competing with the, with the market in this local area. So why can't I go get a job that's going to value me the way I, de- I deserve to be valued? Exactly. Again, nothing. They have nothing to say. There, there is no defense of this that I haven't been able to shoot down. You know, mm-hmm. the other one was the radius. Is It's only a five-mile radius, and we've already talked about that one. Um, right. I don't want somebody opening a new practice in my city. Here's the thing about that one. That one gets me, right? Because number one, how many veterinarians are out there actively looking to open a new practice? There are some, right? I just mm-hmm. don't think it's prevalent, right? Especially when you're asking a new grad to sign a contract. But here's the thing. Any one hospital can only see a finite number of patients. So it's basic math. There's this many hours in a day. I've got this many doctors covering those hours. This is how many appointments we can see. And that is it. So that means that anybody outside of that window, outside of that math, is going to have to wait to be seen. Anybody who opens a new business, the very basic actions that you take to open a new business is, number one, your business plan. And part, the major component, a major component of that business plan is your market saturation research. Mm -hmm. Market saturation research tells you, hey, you know what? This demographic area 
is good or not good for this type of business, right? Right. We all know that pet parent ownership is, is increasing exponentially, right? So if hospital A has a line of patients out the door and I have to wait three weeks to get Stella seen there, mm. well, maybe that community is best served by another practice. And if your veterinarian as the owner, if a veterinarian in your practice right now wants to open another one, shouldn't you be proud of that? Right. Shouldn't you encourage that? Shouldn't you say, wow, you know what? You're ready to open a practice. Let me help you avoid these pitfalls in opening the practice. Mm-hmm. But no, instead of doing that and encouraging ownership where we can eventually partner, right? Where, hey, you know what? I'm overloaded today. Can you take some of these and back and forth? Right. No, they just want to keep it all for themselves. Mm. The non-compete is about greed. Or even they could even opt to be an investor in this new doctor's practice because everyone needs financing. So why not? You can make money if your doctor wants to head their own practice, say, hey, I'll be, you know, 30% or whatever, and I'll give you 30% of your financing. Yeah, I need to write that down, Shannon. That's a great point. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Because then that also makes them more money. And it's crazy because I think part of it is a deep-seated competition with each other that is developed in veterinary school. It's a very high competition with everybody, just, you know, getting in, getting, you know, top grades, whatever. And it doesn't go away. And it, it, extrapolates into other forms once you get out into practice and everywhere. So it's... It absolutely does. You're exactly right, Shannon. You're saying, I mean, I couldn't say these things better myself. You're you're doing... I mean, you obviously know this topic very well. Yeah. Well, I've just... (laughs) I've had to go through it myself recently and I'm still... I haven't signed anything yet because I have a contract with no non-compete and they're on the top of my list right now. And uh, we'll see how everything plays out. But um, yeah, it's definitely... Definitely a tough world out there for everybody right now, (laughs) but we have the power. So I want to remind everybody (laughs) that we have the power and this industry with, you know, people worrying about competitions is insane because people are complaining about burnout and all these things and how you can't see all these pets, but then they don't want another veterinarian coming in the area. And that just seems counterproductive. (laughs) When people are afraid of competition, it's because they don't want to evolve. Mm. Competition forces everybody to do better. It forces you to treat your employees better so that they don't go work at that other clinic. And the reason here, you know, this is one of the topics I didn't touch on. That new grad who was making 85000 and is struggling to make ends meet, you know why they don't want her to work at an extra shift at the hospital across the street? It's because they're afraid that hospital across the street is going to treat her better. Right. And then she'll want to stay there, right? So if we have non-competes, I don't have to worry about improving my environment because you can't go anywhere. And if you do leave for at least a year, I don't have to worry about you working in this town. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the penalty. You don't get to work in your hometown if you work for me. Right. And that's exactly. just wrong on so many levels. You know, and we didn't even touch, I'm sorry, Shane, we, we didn't even touch on the mental health aspect of this. And I would be ignorant to say that the non-compete is the reason for the mental health issues in the veterinary industry. Mm-hmm. I would not say that. Okay, but here's something that's very personal to me, Shannon. If there's a single commonality between a veteran and a veterinarian, it's the high suicide rate. That is so unfortunate. Okay, now here's the thing. It's non-compete. I'm in a situation where it's an untenable work environment, toxic for whatever the reason is. Mm -hmm. But in order for me to find a new job, I have to uproot my entire family or I have to find additional daycare for my children. Whatever the case is, it's some major life decisions that I'm not prepared to make right now. So the alternative is for me to suffer in silence. And doing that adds additional stress to an already stressful job. 
And that stress leads to burnout. And that mm-hmm. burnout leads to the mental health issue. So I'm not saying that it's the cause of the mental health issue, but I am saying it's a contributor. How yes. much of a contributor, we'll never be able to determine. But to me, if it's a fraction of 1%, that mm-hmm. is too much. That is way right. too much. Yeah, it's definitely a, a contributing factor in a lot of people's decisions. And, you know, just one more barrier for people to be able to have control over their own lives. So anything that we can do to kind of make it a level playing field and really opening that market for veterinarians to move around would be beneficial for everybody. And uh, they more access to their vets. <laughs> you get to help more people and their pets. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Julio Alonso. Do you want to keep up with everything Vet Med? Then check out my show on Vet Candy TV. We talk about clinical updates, science news, plus some of the coolest people in our profession. Stream at My Vet Candy 24-7 on YouTube, iTunes, and most other video platforms. Thank you so much, Paul, for coming on the show today. Uh, we shared so much good information for everybody. Um, and for all our listeners, I will put Paul's uh, contact information in the notes and his link to his higher power consulting. So if anyone has questions for you or wants to work with you, um, they can do that as well. Absolutely. And Shannon, before I let you go, I wanted to plug the petition that I started to mm-hmm. end this non-compete. I started about four days ago and the number of signatures trickled in relatively slowly uh, for the first couple of days until one veterinarian went and shared it with a private veterinary Facebook group. And then hundreds of signatures came in. So we're up over 400 in just four days. If you're interested, if you believe that ending the non-compete is the right thing to do, please consider signing that petition. You can find it at change.org forward slash end the veterinary non-compete. And if you find me on LinkedIn, I'll be posting it on LinkedIn nonstop. Um, You'll see examples of these contract terms and what they actually mean. You know, if you can just help me further educate veterinarians, especially the veterinary students, because once all of you are empowered to say no to this, it's going to change. Absolutely. And I can put the link to that um, change.org in the notes of this podcast as well. Um, So if you feel um, that you want to sign it and get in on uh, protecting our future selves uh, and our current selves from signing something that isn't in our best interest, definitely uh, give us a signature. And thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Thank you for all of our listeners. I hope you learned something new today. You feel more empowered by what we talked about today. And I am just so excited to keep bringing you more people to uh, just elevate our, our veterinary industry. So this has been a fantastic episode of Vet Candy IRL. I'm Shannon Gregoire, and you can let me know how much you like this episode or ideas for future episodes at Dr. Shannon DVM on all my social media. And Paul Diaz himself is on uh, LinkedIn as well, and we'll put all his contact information in the notes. Thank you. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.